Good morning. I am your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the January 20, 2015 edition of Ask a Leader. UCI physics professor Bill Heidrink and friends will honor the legacy and memory of colleague John Rosendahl as they talk about the coolest physics show and lecture of all time in which you listeners are invited to partake on January 31st. Adventures in Physics Quantum Circuits will tell you all the details about that special event in the show's first segment. Over the second half of the show, UCI political science professor Davin Phoenix and actually a student Parshan Kosravi is going to join him. They'll bring insight into minority executives, mayoral and presidential, preceding President Obama's State of the Union address. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to Ask a Leader All. Today's first half of the show is an event honors John Rosendahl, Instructional Programs Director in the Department of Physics and Astronomy from 1987 to 2012. My guests are UC Professor Bill Heidbrink, former educator and collaborator Linda Halipoff, to talk about the January 31st physics demonstration. Adventures in Physics Quantum Circuits. We're going to also elaborate on John Rosendahl's creation of this institution, memorable lecture demonstrations seen by more than 50,000 students at physics assemblies for K through 12 schools. First, Bill Heidbrink earned his BA degree at the University of California, San Diego, completed a couple years of research at Maxwell Laboratories, then earned his PhD at Princeton University. After working as a staff member, at Princeton's TFTR, and that's Tokamak or Tokamak? Tokamak. Tokamak Project and the General Atomics D3-D Tokamak, Bill joined the UCI Physics Department in 1988. He studies fast ions in magnetic fusion experiments and investigates instabilities that are driven unstable by the free energy in the fast ion population. Other research includes diagnostic development and measurements of fast ion confinement. Along with teaching plasma physics courses on all levels at UCI, Bill trains undergraduates to perform physics assemblies in neighboring elementary and middle schools. These very assemblies are the topic in our coverage of John Rosendahl's legacy. John Rosendahl's surviving wife, Linda Halipoff, also has a hand in this legacy. She earned her B.A. in history at UCLA and received her teaching credential at Concordia University. Her first career move was with UCI student activities and then on to a host of outward bound projects around the country. An educator in multiple subjects in many districts throughout Southern California, including Irvine Unified, she is now retired. Her early courtship with John Rosendahl included forays into the pedagogy of physical science, We'll take up those formative discussions in a few minutes. Bill and Linda, join me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Bill Heidrink and Linda Halipoff. 
Hello. Hi, Claudia. Good to have both of you in. Good morning. Uh, we've got a lot of firepower brain trust in here, and some of them have to maybe leave a little early so they can have the, all those medical school uh, lecture notes in peace uh, before lunch. So first, Bill, would you tell us briefly about this year's installment of Adventures in Physics, sort of uh, entice listeners about what's in store on January 31st? Okay, so the uh, public event for Adventures in Physics actually has four different parts. So the first part is uh, we have students who have spent fall quarter, undergraduates, going out and performing assemblies to elementary school students in uh, Santa Ana and other neighboring uh, school districts. So they start out with an electricity show that has all kinds of cool demos. And that's when it's more, although it's more targeted towards younger children, the demos are so much fun that it's enjoyable for all ages. And then at the end of each assembly, normally we have a hands-on portion. Uh, we have a, a hands-on portion at the, after about a 40-minute show. We have a hands-on portion for this one, too, but we're going to add a whole lot of extra um, demonstrations and activities. So we'll have a hands-on portion for about 20 minutes. Then the show is about electricity and has some um, material about circuits, but now we step up the level of sophistication some. Professor Phil Collins, who, who manufactures um, nano circuits in his laboratory, will give a public lecture. It's intended to be understandable to, to all ages, but it will be targeted more towards the adult population. And that will go for about 45 minutes. And then the very last segment is uh, we will have bust in some students from uh, Northern Orange County schools that are less privileged, uh, these will be high school students, and we're going to have a panel with four undergraduates who will talk about the ups and downs of college life. And you will talk about what, how you've broken down how this sort of array of presentations adds traction to people's retention of what they take away, as well as recruits them into the sciences, which is all, all important. So th this is helpful. This is, um, folks, we're going to say it over and over again so it's not missed. It's, this is going to be at the UCI Physical Sciences Lecture Hall in um, PSLH 100. That's January. It's two Saturdays from this live broadcast, January 31st from 1 till 3 p.m. I imagine you might run over. This sounds like you said more than two hours worth of content there. Well, the student panel is probably an additional 20 minutes. Okay. But most people will, most of the public will leave at 3. Oh, well. I, I don't think they could tear themselves away. Well, I, I, I saw a little bit of um, a smattering of what you put on, and so I, I want you to, to help the, give the audience the benefit of, of what sorts of precious background there is involved with this institution you've created with John Rosendahl. Why don't you tell us some of your favorite anecdotes about putting these demonstrations together some of the first brush reactions that you had from your students. Let's start from the formative part and the first reactions. Okay. So I'll start with a little history. Please. Uh, we started, both John and I had young children going to elementary school, and we were already doing demonstrations in our lecture courses, and those were a lot of fun, so we decided to put together, independently decided to put together shows for our children and do assemblies at their school. But, and then shortly thereafter, we joined forces and we're doing it together. But it was a lot of work to load up John's van with these, all these heavy, cumbersome 
demonstrations, one of the favorites was the bed of nails where John would lie in the bed of nails and I would lift up a sledgehammer. And Wait one moment, though. You're missing one. It's not the integral part, but it is a part listeners need. And you can do this over radio, folks. John, a rock climber and a, a penultimate athlete, before getting on the bed of nails, he'd pull off his shirt and there was a ripped body <laughs> that would go on the bed of nails. So we, we just there's a lot of texture to this. Go ahead. Yes, yeah, so thanks for the interruption. <laughs> That's very important. <laughs> so so we would I would and I was I became a great ham. So I would hesitate with a sledgehammer yes. above the brick, and at one memorable one memorable assembly, one child yelled out, "He's gonna die." <laughs> <laughs> and then he didn't die. But so we did these shows. And then John had the brilliant idea that this was a lot of work. How come we're just doing it for our own children's elementary school? Let's go to to schools where the children don't have all the opportunities that our kids do. So we started to go to El Toro Marine and Santa Ana. And we were young and crazy. We would do 10 assemblies in two days. Wow. And, um, wow. That it, is rock star worthy. Yeah. It was. Oh, it, yeah. It we was, were the roadies. It was insane. <laughs> Uh, so then uh, once John's son uh, finished elementary school, he John didn't want to do it anymore, but he had a great idea. He actually suggested that uh, I should recruit undergraduates to do it with me. And I, at first I was sort of reluctant to do that. I was really focused on the young children and the benefits that they were gaining. But it turned out that that was brilliant. yes. Um, the benefit of the program became both to the undergraduate participants and to the elementary kids who right. were participating. Oh, wow. I remember one one occasion in particular I had... Uh, and to the wives, because we didn't have to load all that stuff in the vans anymore with <laughs> right, you. Right, you had the, those robust <laughs> students. All right. That was good. Yes, so... Um, and they could appreciate the, the startup stuff in there. I remember one time I had a couple of students who were upper division physics majors, and they were actually struggling with a difficult physics major. And we went and we did a show at a middle school. And afterwards, the principal came up to each student, grabbed them right by the face and said, and you have to be a teacher, and you have to become a teacher, and you have to become a teacher. And their body language just went from, oh, I'm, I'm worthless and no good, to, wow. I can really be something important. So that was that was a revelation to me. And so let's talk about how that revelation also was proven by their reactions. How how uh, what what I mean you're you're putting John on that bed of nails and you can take a pan you could pan sweep the the auditorium. So what was going on in those faces? You could see some uh, some. Uh, well, or Linda, the roadie here, could talk about what you saw there. Well, you would just hear bedlam, noise, people. The crowds were just crazy. They were just saying, oh, no, wow. I mean, there was probably five to six, maybe seven minutes of sheer uh, fear with all these elementary students that John would probably get hurt with that sledgehammer. So there was a lot of anticipation. But the... The overall, the, an important thing in every show was that we made a connection between the physics and the mathematics. For a lot of the children, when they're doing mathematics, it's boring, rote drill, and they don't realize that it has a connection to something that excites and interests them. And when they saw our shows, they would be be thrilled by it, and we would always make the point that um, you, 
to be good at science, it's important to be good at math. And I think that that was very important for motivating this, the students. Okay, for those of you who've just joined us, my guests are Bill Heidrink, UCI physics professor, and Linda Halepa, former educator and wife surviving John Rosendahl, talking about the January 31st Adventures in Physics quantum circuits in honor of John's memory and in the advancement of literacy in the physical sciences. Here on Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web in school assemblies around the world at KUCI.org. So uh, we're going to, uh, let's, let's talk about the other fond memories. Sometimes those demonstrations didn't go the way you expected. I can only think of one, but I know you have a handful, because, I mean, that's science, right? It can, and that the venue might change you up a little bit with what your outcome was supposed to be. So I can only think of the egg, the egg cracking. So let's let's start with that while the, maybe both of you are processing some other things. But you were demonstrating about the pressure around on the eggshell. Well, actually, I wasn't at that one, but it's. Oh. I'm glad that you brought that up because it connects up with the two aspects of our Adventures in Physics program. It's an adventure, a wild so, one. So the current... the program actually has these two parts, which are the assemblies that go out to the schools, and then it has this annual public event. And John was actually doing one of these public events without me uh, at for the Irvine Unified School District, and he was trying to demonstrate about pressure and how that you can press on the ends of an egg, um, with, and it can withstand a lot of pressure, but if you press in the middle, it can't, and something went wrong. I don't know what went wrong, but that egg exploded all over the projection screen, and the audience went, <gasps> and the principal ran up and went, <gasps> and we had a disaster. And John kept his cool as, as he I remember He did. He kept teaching the lesson, and we kept mopping up after him, and it, it all worked out. And he explained that, as, okay. you, as you said, he explained that science does not always go exactly like you planned, which is... Certainly the case. In fact, most experiments, the first time you try them, don't work rather than do work. Okay. All right. So how about some other examples of th where things might have gone differently for you in that? There must there's always something. I mean, you, maybe you didn't expect some of the things. Some things weren't there or that you expected or I, I don't know. Maybe you're, you could. Well, I'll, I'll, we I'll just mention another one that, that's fun. One of the ones that we actually do in the electricity show is it's called the jumping ring. And so the way the jumping ring works is it, it exploits what's known as Faraday's law um, so that you put a ring over an electromagnet and this aluminum ring jumps up in the air when the electromagnet is pulsed on. It's like two magnets uh, repelling each other and it goes up in the air. Then you put the, the ring into liquid nitrogen and... Um, in, in the, it cools down a lot, which makes its resistance go way down, so it becomes a much stronger magnet in response to the electromagnet. And it goes up very high, hits the roof of whatever auditorium you're in, and comes oh. back. Uh oh So one time, I, I was performing this to, to an assembly, and uh, it shot up, and when it came back down, it landed right in the liquid nitrogen bucket. Oh, no. And all the liquid nitrogen 
splotched <laughs> out all over the table with with uh, steam coming off, and it was really extremely dramatic. I I loved that one. That was one of the most fun I ever had with and a demonstration. You, so, what did you explain? What, I didn't explain anything. Just I just laughed with the, with the audience. <laughs> okay. Okay. Good. All right. And there weren't any materials that we were counting on using that froze and shattered there? No. no. Okay. We, we, we survived that one. Okay. Any other ones? Well, let me just interject here. That, yes, Linda. Um, when I went to UCLA a long time ago, and I had, uh, I had David Saxon, who was president of the university and a physics teacher, and he would do these experiments that after the class was over, we would we would have to come down to the front of the lecture hall and we would have to look at the teeny little thing he did. Well, that meant 350 freshmen had to rush down to the front of the lecture hall and look at this tiny little thing that, to me, had no significance because I was not a science person. So what these large-scale conceptual physics shows are doing is showing the main point that the professor wants to get across so these are visible their the scale you oh, made it. they are so good and i wish i'd had a physics teacher like this when i was in school maybe i would have enjoyed it a lot more because i certainly did not when i was in in college and and i remember when i saw this demonstration it was actually at john rosendahl's memorial and there were graduate students of john's and bill's that spoke uh, in john's memory and they said they can't remember well sorry with bill do respect bill he, the this contributor at the service said, I don't remember any of the notes I took down, but I remember every aspect of the demonstration. So that the traction, it's not just proving the point, it's having that, that retention of the point being made, which is that, we'll, we'll, we'll break it down and how that, that, this is part of that, those formative talks you had with John. So Bill, I don't know if you had any other sort of reminiscings of uh, what you're doing you said a little bit about your intended audience, but well, let's just combine the two. What you've learned and some of the highlights of your presentations and what that tells you about your audience, that uh, what, you're reaching both the students and their teachers. You're giving them some substantive area, some substantive material, and you're giving them some new pedagogical techniques that they maybe hadn't thought about before. I think for the assemblies, it's primarily the motivation side okay. of it that counts. Uh, that, I mean, the real, the real learning uh, involves activity, and so this engages the children in a way that motivates them to continue to learn. For the public event, um, the I I think a lot of it is just to show how fun science is as well. Once again, I think it is largely motivational. But it's also to, to stretch your minds. Last year at our public event, we had a wonderful public lecture by Daniel Whiteson about particle physics and the discovery of the Higgs boson and how that connected up with our show, which was about momentum and the liquid nitrogen cannon flying off. It was just a, a great program that really was very appealing to all different ages. We had children who were uh, in rapt attention during... Daniel's lecture, and you know, I'm a PhD scientist. I thought it was great too. I was learning things and enjoying you it were, as well. Honestly, wow. Okay, so the audience is as infinite as the uh, the possibilities of outcomes. Yes. 
Okay. <laughs> okay. So, Bill, uh, thank you for coming to the show. That This is signing off for this portion of the uh, remainder of the appearance here is Bill Heidbrink, and he's going to be off getting ready for the, the medical school lecture. So thanks, Bill Heidbrink, for coming on the show today. Okay. And I hope to see many people at the Adventures of Physics. Count me and You'll see me there. <laughs> in about 10 days. Great. Okay. Thanks Bye. a lot, Bill. Bye-bye. So, Linda, let's go back to you are walking your roommate's dog with John Rosendahl in this uh, early courtship, and you notice he's sending... Uh, use some uh he's firing off some kinds of physics questions and you're not you're not so interested but let's talk about that setting where the beginning of this this whole institution was hatched right so we'll go back to about 1981 when john and i first met and he came over to walk my roommate's dog and i didn't recognize him so i said well let me go with you and we went and we took murphy for a little walk and and, you know, when you're just getting to know someone, you usually ask uh, the person about them themselves. And uh, But John seemed to be real comfortable asking me questions about certain phenomenon. And he would ask questions about if I pulled a thread, if I pulled a piece of thread from the bottom or top of the spool, which way would the spool go? Would it come towards me or go away from me? And I thought, wow, what an odd question to ask someone. And I... But it really got me thinking, and I had been a seamstress, so I, you know, had experience with thread. And, you know, I don't really even remember what the answer was, but I know that my answer was wrong. Oh, oh. <laughs> so, so I actually went home and, and tried this later on, and, uh, and he was right. But I don't know. We talked about a lot of things. But every walk we would take, he would sort of quiz me on some kind of science question. And I found it kind of interesting, although at a certain point, it did start annoying me. I was <laughs> I didn't have a science background, but um, eventually it all worked out. We uh, spent a lot of fun times together. He had a very intense sort of personality. We would do things. Uh, we wouldn't just hike five miles. We would hike 15 or 20 miles, and we wouldn't just bike ride 10 miles. We would bike ride 60 or 70 miles. So John liked taking things to the limit, and um, that was just part of his personality. Well... You already talked about some of uh, your experiences as the roadie for this. Maybe you have some other uh, additional reflections about seeing that fire uh, go off in an audience member in these demonstrations. Well, Bill talked about how we took the science shows to Turtle Rock Elementary School, where both his children and my son Kai were students in the, uh, uh, what, that would be the early 90s, I guess it was, and when kids would come into the multipurpose room and see these big pieces of equipment with bowling balls hanging from uh, large ropes and big tubes and bicycles that would light up lights, they were just excited. And Mary and I, Bill's wife, we'd be walking around making sure all the uh, computers that were set up were working and we'd wow. get... We would just get all the equipment ready. We'd load it, unload it, and just to hear the excitement of kids and to watch their anticipation and to have them ask really great questions. I was going to say, what kind? if you can even remember, you remember the quality of them, but mm. that, put that in the back of your mind while we're talking about the audience. Well, so, for example, this bed of nails things, uh, you know, kids would, would say, why didn't he get hurt? Why didn't he die? And then they would go on to explain that, the energy was absorbed by the cinder block that Bill would hit because Bill would raise a big um, hammer sledgehammer. or sledgehammer above his head and he'd come down and he hit the cinder block. Well, that's the thing with the 
would break. And so all the energy would go into breaking the cinder block and not into forcing the bed of nails onto John's <laughs> chest. So, you know, kids wanted to know why, why, why? And Bill and John had a good way of explaining it. And I know that that demonstration will live on in the minds of, yes. of kids as long as they live. So um, there was just a lot of excitement. And I don't know. What else? Did they? Well, did you um, also get the additional kind of uh, contribution of the, uh, I'm going to call it feedback, I guess there's no other word for it, of uh, any kind of little follow-ups, that letters from the students? I'm sure that they were required to write, but there must have been some jewels there. Yeah. As a classroom teacher myself, yes. we often would go back to the classroom after a great assembly, and I'd ask the students to either write a letter to the presenter or do some journaling. And I know that uh, Bill and John both received some wonderful letters. I think you were going to ask me about a letter that Bill had. I don't remember exactly what it said. But, but you could tell. But kids were you, really in, enthralled, and they um, they appreciated it so much. So uh, there was a lot of value in what we did. And I'm, I'm sorry those shows aren't still going on at Turtle Rock School, but I know that Bill is still sending some of those shows out. Or there's an outreach program that I believe is still going into some of the... From UCI? Or, from, from UCI. That, and that this is, are these the, the uh, students that are... These are the students that are doing the training. shows now. Okay. That's right. All mm-hmm. right. So are the students bringing back any kind of interesting material from these experiences? Or Well, it's that, that remains to be determined. We can we'll, find out. We'll have to ask Bill. We'll post that. Oh, yeah, we can do that. So did you also get any... Uh, reaction afterward from the teachers who uh, were also the beneficiaries it was did it make teaching more interesting more uh, uh well, easy uh, did, what, especially at an elementary school level most teachers do not have a strong science background yes so these teachers were able to take with them the main concepts that they learned uh about electricity or waves or energy or motion and they could discuss them in a in a better way to help their kids understand the science that they were learning in their science classes. Uh, in fourth through sixth grade in the Irvine Unified School District, they have a very good science curriculum, and John and, and Bill would make sure that they were tapping into that curriculum when they gave the assemblies also. So it all worked together. It, was, it all integrated beautifully. So, Linda Halipoff, can you let us know uh, to what extent this project is being sustained financially so we can uh, have some kind of an assurance that it will continue? Or this is a this is your platform. This is a community where you can say where you would like people to step up with in-kind assistance or uh, and money. What what can you pitch okay. in this community radio can. format? I certainly can. When John died in September of 2012, Uh, We had a wonderful memorial for him, and it was announced at that time by the UCI Physics Department that they would be accepting donations in honor of John and to continue these Adventures in Physics show. So if anyone is interested in continuing to donate, where do they go? They can go to uh, UCI Physics Department and just express an interest in, well, it would be the UCI Physics Department. Department Development Office. Okay. And uh, just say you're interested in contributing to the Adventures in Physics show, and I'm sure they'd be able to help you. All right. There have also been some uh, very generous anonymous donations and donations from friends who have continued to support us. Maybe a few uh, envelopes with the uh, address on it are laying around at the demonstration. That might be. Maybe yes. you could do that then. Okay. okay, Tatiana, if you're listening, this is a this is for you. So, uh, well, very good. Well, I want to remind everybody as we wrap this up, this portion of the show, that the adventures in 
you know, I just want to keep remembering. Adventures in Physics, Quantum Circuits. This exciting physics show and lecture entertaining children and adults of all ages. It's right around the corner, January 31st, in the Physical Sciences Lecture Hall. January 31, as I said, 1 to 3 p.m. Also, that's a free parking day on oh. the UCI campus because it's the same day as UCI Homecoming. So that's great for people coming from off campus. Well-timed. And can you read from that flyer, Claudia, who, um, the professor that's going to be speaking that day? Is it Phil Collins? I have. the Phil Collins will be contributing, uh, and I'm trying to think. I don't have the flyer up with me, but okay. folks, you can go to the UCI Physics Science and Astronomy Department, and you can pull up that um, particular announcement with all all of and the January twenty third is the RSVP deadline. But I'm sure you're not going to turn anybody away. But it's nice to know how many people are coming if right. they have to be, provide some spillover uh, space right. up beyond this rock star setting. Okay, so uh, folks. Thanks. Thank, yes. Just thank you for calling attention to this show. I think it's a great thing for people to know about, and uh, John would be very proud to know that all of this work and demonstration and large conceptual physics is being carried into the future. Make him very happy. I've been wanting to do this since December of 2012, so I'm thanking you, Linda, and I already thank Bill for uh, coming in the show. We're honoring the legacy and memory of colleague and husband, respectively, John Rosendahl, with the upcoming Adventures in Physics uh, right around the corner, as I said, uh, and we'll be back then after a short break. Thanks a lot, Linda. Talk okay. to you uh, when I see you there, okay? Thanks, Claudia. Okay, bye thank bye. you. Bye-bye. We'll be right back after a short break. We're going to bring up our guests, Professor Davin Phoenix and Parshan Kozravi. Stay with us. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is UCI political science professor Davin Phoenix on this day situated between yesterday's commemoration of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and then in front of tonight's State of the Union address. Professor Davin Phoenix's research interests include racial attitudes, effect and behavior, public opinion, political communication, urban politics, and mobilization of marginalized groups. Lucky we, this he's the man for this half hour. <laughs> His current work is on minority executives in the U.S. That's all the way from U.S. mayors to the White House. He just finished two courses teaching African-American politics and uh, political participation, and he completed, he completed his undergraduate work in political science at Christopher Newport University in Virginia, then both his graduate student and joint degree program for public policy and political science and his PhD at the University of Michigan. This is Professor Phoenix's first year at UCI. Also joining us is, and returning to KUCI, is third-year political science student Parshan Kozravi. He is the organizing director at the Associate Student Body UCI, Office of the Executive Vice President, involved with the 60 by 16 initiative. Parshan and his teamwork are setting uh, the foundation to increase student participation in the 2016 presidential election. If I have any role in that, I'm going to up all the ante so that we get 
full-on participation with what we have available here at this community radio format. Parshan was actually enrolled last fall in Professor Phoenix's political behavior class. Both Professor Phoenix and Parshan join me in Studio A. Welcome to Ant Eater Land, Professor Phoenix, and welcome back, Parshan, to Ask a Leader. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with one of my strong star students from last quarter. Okay. Thank you very much. All right, good. Well, Professor Phoenix, this is the softball, remember? Everybody has to start. How did Parshan do in the class last quarter? Oh, Parshan did fantastic. He was especially valuable to uh, lead conversations in the class. You know, the large class, it can be difficult for folks who feel comfortable getting engaged in the conversation. Uh, I don't want them just staring at me. Uh, so Parshan was great at getting conversations started that uh, his peers could get engaged in, which is great because I don't want to talk the entire time. Well, you want to activate the students at, for fully processing what you're talking about. so That's right. So, um, well, and Parshan, what was your course evaluation for Dr. Phoenix? <laughs> well, I can't, I can't say really <laughs> much uh, other than it was fantastic. It was a phenomenal class and experience, and, you know, it's the type of the class that I hope every political science major student um, will have a chance to experience. Okay. So now into the, the nitty-gritty I'm just uh, taking this right out of your own work, uh, Professor Phoenix. You said it all. Social, this is a quote from you. Socially constructed race categories evolve and adapt with society and are constantly leveraged by contemporary elites to establish and reinforce unequal power relations between groups. This was undeniably the basis for Dr. Martin Luther King's timeless Oration, does the impact of the Obama era render even more subtle and persistent racial subjugation and disenfranchisement in our country? I think in ways it does render uh, racial subjugation uh, more subtle and make it that much more uh, persistent and pervasive. But in other ways, it has exacerbated explicit racial tensions uh, for everyone that views his election and reelection as signs that America has, quote unquote, made it and kind of beaten the race bug. You see persistent reminders of people's hostility towards Obama simply on the basis of his race, even if those uh, if that rhetoric isn't explicitly racist. When you hear people agonizing over losing their country, right, or needing to take their country back, uh, we need to assess who they need to take the country back from, right? Because Obama's certainly not the first uh, Democratic president or the first uh, progressive-leaning president. And so we have to look at the pervasive ways in which race is kind of infiltrating the narrative, both in implicit ways that are subtle and hard to detect, but also in explicit ways that it can be frustrating for people to not have the kind of foundation to call it out as it is, even when it's uh, kind of clear and hitting you right in the face. I know it It may sound a bit pedestrian, but I mean, it was okay. Bill Clinton could sing Lift Every Voice and Sing, and it wasn't mm-hmm. It wasn't going to make the Fox uh, anchors go nuts with, uh, you know, a them and us kind of a thing. But sure. but an, African, a lar- an African-American, actually, he's mixed race present. Some, sure. we, we usually, yeah. for, we don't think of that, but he is. Um, but uh, but he, that puts such a large mantle of a racial component on what his leadership brings to the national discourse that um, it it puts a whole lot more on him to advance larger ideas. Certainly. I think he has uh, been uh, perhaps burdened or constrained in ways previous Democratic predecessors have not 
because of the ways in which anytime he tries to advance uh, progressive policy agenda, or even anytime he's tried to have uh, substantive conversations about race as racial controversies have arisen during his presidency, uh, people only want to view him through the lens of uh, someone who has a biased perspective, right? Yep. So this speaks to kind of this... <clears throat> Um, falsehood that pervades our racial discourse that racial minorities in the country can't speak objectively about race right? when we're kind of not acknowledging the extent to which white itself is a race right? and the white experience itself is one that is socially constructed and subjective right? and so we've definitely seen uh, President Obama uh, run into uh, that kind of pitfall we've also seen generally kind of the uh, constraints on uh, minority executives across any level uh, when there's always a pull, there's always a perception, even if it's not real, that they're going to try to advance the interests of their uh, shared race constituency group above the broader population or the broader constituency. So we've likely seen Obama over the last uh, six years or so uh, kind of work explicitly. Prashanda and I were having this conversation just as we entered in. Okay, to, go um, ahead. Yeah, so we can get into... <laughs> Uh, Prashant's really on-point criticisms about the uh, proposal that he'll announce tonight to kind of open up the doors for people to have uh, access to community college uh, for the first two years. So, Prashant, we'll, if you want to just jump we'll, in with that Okay, criticism. we can do that. Uh, we're going to open up the whole thing about the uh, the address in just a bit. I wanted to speak in some general points. Sure. First, we'll get to that. Um, but uh, You have studied, Professor Phoenix, uh, minority executives in in. Uh, Atlanta, up to some extent, Detroit, some extent, and to a greater extent, uh, Denver. So sure. I guess I'd like to go. Uh, what? How does your work in this area? How does it inform you? Uh, your and your work in my, with minority exec, executives um, uh, with what President Obama is contending. So I look at the ways in which these uh, minority executives, particularly these African-American executives at the mayoral level, are able to win election from uh, cities and locales that are not majority black, right? They have to uh, cultivate a coalition that is multiracial, in which everyone says, this is the person that's going to advance our interests. So they have to uh, oftentimes pursue a deracialized campaign strategy. They have to make explicit cues that they are not simply going to uh, advocate on behalf of their race. So that means uh, before they even get into office, they're making these pretty grand concessions, right? Because oftentimes the and more... blessings. That's right. Uh, oftentimes kind of the substantive advancing of black interests are going to be... Um, centered on an agenda that is uh, focused on kind of redistribution of resources and wealth, right? Yeah, and so we're that's, getting there in that address, <laughs> right. Right, so that's, you know, already going to meet with grand opposition from the people from whom that wealth would be redistributed. When you add that racial element, there's a great deal of resentment because people often conflate uh, imagery of uh, non-working poor or the undeserving poor, people that don't deserve that chance, with images of racial minorities, right? So black... Executive coming in already has that burden to overcome. And so by having to make those explicit kind of cues that say, I'm not going to uh, work only on behalf of my shared race constituency, they've already kind of taken away any kind of political capital to advance a substantive kind of progressive agenda. And so we've seen uh, Obama represents a unique case in which in 2008, he largely ran on a very progressive platform, right? It was uh, transformational, the type of 
image he created for himself in terms of what he was going to push for. And so we saw he was rallying not only people of color, but the youth. Right. So he is winning uh, election and reelection on the basis of kind of a coalition that's not typically tapped into for national elections. Right. African-Americans, Latinos, Asians, women, young voters. He's winning because they're coming out in more droves than they do before. Right. And so that still hasn't necessarily translated into the political capital to be able to kind of enact the kind of agenda that would benefit those groups. Because once he's got that coalition in place to elect him, right, uh, there hasn't been a concentrated effort to kind of maintain that coalition. And you've seen that manifest in the large democratic losses in both his sets of midterm elections. Okay, well, we're going to pick that up in a second. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is UCI political science professor Davin Phoenix and third-year UCI student Parshan Khosravi here on Ask a Lead on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web in voters' registration lines, voting lines on KUCI.org. Well, now, this is what you've talked about, both of you. We're going to bring in uh, Parshan more. Now, uh, as we said, to the National Minority Executive, um, uh, uh, President Obama, is he's trying his hand at Martin Luther King's issue-based messages with what you call, uh, Professor uh, Phoenix, issue agreement coalition model. Had the president come out with his current tax reform proposals, uh, one and two, as they are, stay in the state of the, uh, if he had done it one to two years prior instead of now, how likely is it that he would be speaking to a different composition of Congress? <laughs> you know, that's a really good question. It's uh, one thing we have to acknowledge with this uh, recent midterm election is uh, the idiosyncrasies that kind of determine who's up for reelection every two years. What we faced in 2014 as much as Republicans may want to claim it was a mandate and is a referendum on Obama, what we face were a disproportionately large number of Democrats that are already in conservative or Southern districts up for election in the Senate and the House. Uh, regardless of how people felt about Obama at the time, it would have been very difficult for them to kind of hold on to their seats simply because they were almost anomalies in the first place being Democrats elected from these conservative areas. So I think we need to divorce a little bit kind of the perceptions of Obama from the 2014 midterm results. That Having said that, that does mean that Obama may have had more leverage than he gave himself credit for, kind of pushing through a progressive agenda and not kind of That's the head sitting scratcher. on his hands, the right, waiting for those elect results and, to come out. And this is what you were perhaps part of this is what you're talking. Go ahead, Parshan, right. jump in here. Right, yeah. And I was going to mention, I mean, some of the things that I learned last last uh, quarter in the Excellent. class, Excellent. as well as, you know, some of the things I observed is midterm elections is, is almost impossible to get the, the youth to be involved in um, and come out to vote. And um, other also a lot of different dynamics to the population. So, you know, factors like that is, is very determining in, in terms of, um, who does get to um, vote and who whose vote is going to count. And in that terms, it, that's one of the other reasons that I would see why um, it wouldn't have mattered what President Obama would have done, um, that we would have seen a GOP takeover regardless. And I think, you know, personally, I think it, it, in, a, in a political sense, it's a very smart way um, for President Obama to, to want to move for, uh, with this agenda now because, uh, one... It's putting pressure on the GOP um, run uh, Senate and, and Congress that, that they have to now 
respond to a, a large amount of support by the people uh, for these policies. And number two, it's setting foundation for um, more of a more democratic agenda to be coming up in the future as as um, the, the Republican GOP um, is going to have to deal with these now. Right. And so um, he's got um, it, it, it. It's not a small thing. He's got uh, in seated with the first lady uh, in the State of the Union dress uh, sort of assemblage of folks. Uh, he has uh, a number of constituencies he's going to refer to in talking to, and I'm, I'm going to list them, folks. I, I, I get the press releases from the White House now. It's a little, little credential that uh, Benny I get. So he's going to be talking, calling out to the, the Chicago South Side 13-year-old, the community college student, the medical student, working with, I think, uh, infectious diseases, uh, the labor apprentice, the under and unemployed letter writers, a veteran who's surviving wounds received in Afghanistan, Alan Gross recently returned from detention Cuba, a sea level rise researcher, a Watts Precinct police officer, a Dream Act, that is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals beneficiary, to name a few. Isn't he, we can talk to uh, Professor Phoenix and Parson, isn't he talking over the congressional members in the room as he seems to be conveying a message within this issue agreement coalition model of all those issues? Yeah, I think so. I think that's very spot on. I think what we've seen from Obama since the midterm election are two things. One, a strong sense of motivation as he's thinking about his legacy to kind of return to the form that he had in 2008, which is that transformative, progressive-minded reformer. So you've got that motivation, and you've got a sense of relief. He no longer has to be the campaigner-in-chief because he no longer has the fate of a Democratic Congress tied to him, and he doesn't have to run for re-election himself. And so from kind of his executive order on immigration to kind of taking his first steps to normalizations of relations with Cuba, right? We've seen a president that is going to use these last two years to really kind of manifest that promise he entered as that progressive-minded reformer. So I think it's going to be interesting to see uh, how he tries to position himself, particularly with his remarks tonight, uh, with Congress, with Washington generally, reorient his position from one of weakness and reaction to one of strength, one where he gets to drive the agenda. Because Republicans can't simply afford to be obstructionists in his last few years, because now they've got to point to some legislative victories and some advancements uh, that can give the momentum for the, whoever their Republican presidential candidate is. So I think this actually gives Obama a degree of leverage, even with Republican-controlled Congress, that he hasn't had before. And he's going to work to ensure that that leverage is pushing forward uh, an agenda that is consistent with his legacy and consistent with what he came in kind of venturing as a promise. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, you know, like we can see these these um, results coming in as we move on. Um, I mean, as, as of last night, there was a poll that came out that showed President Obama's support has just risen um, to the highest level in the last 18 months. And these are these are very, very real pressure being put on GOP to to really have to deal with uh, with a lot of people that are now supportive of uh, president's campaigns that were promises that he made when he was coming to the office back in 2008 and um, these promises for, for you know the past six years everyone has constantly tried to kind of criticize president for for not really um, living up to that promise that he made when he came to the office and and I believe 
Um, I personally believe that he didn't have any option to be able to follow for those uh, with those campaigns um, in the last six years and last, especially the first four years. And I think that as we move on towards the end of his his term in the office, we're seeing more and more of these these promises being being actually becoming real um, movements. And that that's what I'm very excited to see as as we move on. So I know a lot of pundit talk is cheap, but I I have to bring up the point that less less. Uh, more introspective talk is about the life, the shelf life of a, a seven-year State of the Union address is about seven minutes or something like that. So, uh, are you saying then, Professor Phoenix and Parshan, that this uh, the the heft of his recent executive actions with the China um, Earth, uh, the, with the China Climate Change Concessions uh, Agreement, and with the uh, Deferred Action uh, Promulgation, with uh, and with the tax. Um, redistribution discussion and these proposals now, do you see that, that sort of those are creating a different kind of momentum for a longer shelf life for the address? I think definitely. Even the fact that we can discuss all these major policy proposals before hearing the speech indicates that they're taking a new track with this, right? So rather right, than they are bringing of, it up. This has gone on the road before yeah. the fact and not after, which is the tradition. And you think about how... Uh, the degree to which this gives him a strategic advantage and why people haven't thought about this before. Okay. Uh, whatever you propose in the State of the Union can be immediately countered by the opposing party you know, five minutes after you finish. But if you unveil those proposals in the weeks leading up to the State of the Union, you dominate the discourse, right? Because there is no uh, kind of coordinated response from the opposing party. So it is, I think... Very uh, novel and smart an approach to kind of spoil the State of the Union proposals. Can we call it instead of sometimes we call them facts on the ground? This is these are facts on the clipboard. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay, maybe something like that. Parshan? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I can't agree anymore. And I think um, you've you learned know, your lessons well in yeah. participation <laughs> class. Yeah. But yeah, definitely. I mean, um, it's it's something that is as as you know. As a student with interest in policy, I'm always excited to see these things happening in the polit- political world because we see a new track, we, s- we see a new tactic, and we see a tactic that is working. That that you know the president, and and one of the things I can say for a fact is regardless of how we view on on uh, president's policies, uh, one thing that I can say in fa- for a fact is that president has always been successful in reaching out to the youth and reaching out to the to the um, populations that other um, politicians have not been able to reach out as much. And so that's what he's using this to his leverage to actually really really be able to implement the, the policies that he, he has on mind. And I really want to give credit where credit is due. Parshan is not eligible to register to vote right now. So uh, that he has mobilized to this extent is is a phenomenal example, which we all, that's why I give this show its crazy title because people are really setting them up. Uh, putting themselves out there and mobilizing as real examples for everybody listening and passing the messages on. So uh, for those of you who tuned in, we're about to wrap down, wrap up the show. I have on with me Davin Phoenix, who is professor of political science at UC Irvine. It's his first year. We're so glad he's here at, at UCI as well as here in the Studio A with me and his his student who's taking the, the political participation coursework message on to the uh, to the next uh, seminar and the next sign up for because uh, uh, registration is happening right now. You want to yeah. quickly give a plug for the um, yeah, definitely. I mean, sixteen sixteen. Yeah, the sixty by sixteen commission is is working hard. We had we had a, a kind of a good wrap up last last quarter after um, 
our the midterm elections season was over and we are kind of like rebuilding back up the momentum to start um a, a larger push and uh we will probably see towards like later on this quarter and definitely spring quarter will be another huge um kind of move towards water registration because it's it's getting closer and closer and i think as we move on to the season of you know um now it's the um primary uh, elections and all uh, the primary kind of candidates are, are now coming up and talking and they're expressing their interests and as we see more of these happening now we can uh, we will we'll have more interest by the students to to want to come up come with forward. your boots on the ground here with this campaign uh, what uh, do you think it's effective in how the Obama administration has been using social networks to uh, crowd the address into 140 characters and get postings going on. Are you seeing that sufficient? And do you know uh, how many of your compatriots are going to be watching the longer version, the analog version of all this address? Well, I can I can tell you that uh, that um, all of us in, in ACCI in the same government are going to be watching very closely and very detailed. Um, together. As, uh, together. At mostly, 6 o'clock you know. tonight, folks. Yep. Um, but, you know, and uh, but on the other side also, I yes. do want to mention that um, it's a very, again, uh, smart tactic the way that the president is trying to approach the the otherwise uninterested and disinterested students or other populations that wouldn't get the chance not necessarily not even because they're uninterested but rather because they don't have the chance to sit through the whole thing and watch the whole thing they're really finding ways and approaches to reach out to all the populations um those who are you know from working class they're working or uh, from you know um, those who don't even know that such things happen, so that from popular media, um, the the president and the, the, his team is going to be able to approach these populations, which other politicians again have have um, not been as active. But they are; they're getting. I mean, we saw <laughs> we saw the ground game change in the 2014 elections. I think that was one of the huge structural things that's got me wondering about how what kind of advantages there are for. Um, for the Dems in uh, 2016, because that ground game is big. Mm -hmm. And so, I, well, Professor Phoenix, it's been a pleasure having you on, Parson, having you on as well. Uh, Professor Phoenix, I hope you'll return. Uh, were you to consider the ever-expanding racial diversity in U.S. executives, since your sites are on uh, African-American and Latino executives now, can we talk later about Pan-Asian Arab and other minority executives on the show. I'd love to. It'd be a pleasure. Okay, because they're they're here. We have in Orange County right. represented and and beyond. Thank you both for your time in studio and all your productive work. That's with me here. Our UCI science professor Davin Phoenix. Watch out for the course you'll be teaching in the spring. It's urban politics. See it in the political science catalog. So here at UCI. That's right. Okay, I'm Professor Phoenix, Parshan Kozrabi. Thanks for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This brings Ask a Leader to a close. Next week, we'll bring on show uh, Napoleon Gomez to cover the state of his Mexican miners, union affiliates and mining laborers there, and dissent in Mexico. A great deal has happened since his interview here on April 2013. Then we'll have on UCI student Pyle Shaw, the president of Anteaters for Autism, with some opportunities in the works. I just have one announcement to make about what's happening this week. That is here in Orange County, Women for Orange County's annual membership meeting is on January 25th, 1.30 at the Irvine Ranch, 
Water District uh, Duck Club. Guest judge, the Honorable Frederick P. Agure at the Superior Court of Orange County. More details are available at www.womenfororangecounty.org or email womenforoc at aol.com about the whole program. That's the close of the show. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you.